Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Now let's open our Bibles together once again to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. It is the final Sunday before Christmas, and I know you're expecting a message on the incarnation. Well, you know that we don't necessarily follow the liturgical calendar when it comes to sermons, but I want to start here in Romans 5, and Lord willing, show you from the scriptures why the doctrine of the virgin birth was necessary. In fact, that's the title of the message today, the necessity of the virgin birth. You remember that the overall theme of this book of Romans is the doctrine of justification by faith. And so far in the first five chapters, Paul has declared the justice of God's wrath, that all of us are guilty, so he indicts all of humanity. Uh, He provides a way, though, in chapter 3 of reconciliation to God. And then in chapter 4, he explains the the uh, implications of the doctrine of justification by faith. And then as we saw last week, he also explains the mechanics of justification by faith. And we use two words, the federal headship of Adam and of Christ, and also imputation. That is, God the Father in his sovereignty allows two persons in history, Christ and Adam, to represent all of humanity. Adam and the last Adam, Christ. Now, through Adam's representation of all of us, What we got from that is original sin. That is the consequence of Adam and Eve's sin. That is that death and condemnation entered the world. But through Christ's redemption, we can have forgiveness, reconciliation, and most importantly, eternal life. So Christ indeed is the true and better Adam. So Paul wraps up his thoughts here in our text today, verses 18 through 21. Let's read them now. You remember that the phrase, so then, tells us that Paul is returning to the point he was making when he went on a little excursion, a little digression of thought at the end of verse 12. And uh, so just for context, I'm going to read verse 12 and then right after it begin in verse 18. Scripture says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, how did all sin? Well, we saw last week, all of us are guilty by virtue of Adam's federal headship. Then we come to verse 18. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, that's the cross, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many were made righteous. The law came in so that transgression would increase. Remember, the law had no power to justify, only to condemn. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. So that's why Christ came into the world, so that he could take on the sin of all who would believe and represent them before God the Father. But to do that, he had to live a sinless life so that he would be qualified to take our place upon the cross. But even begins before his sinless life. So what in the world does that have to do with Christmas and specifically the virgin birth? Well, quite a lot, actually. You remember that the first Adam came 
to be in a supernatural way. God spoke him to existence from the dust of the earth. And the last Adam took on human flesh also in a supernatural way, in what we call the virgin birth. More accurately, we should call it the virgin conception. And let's read about that now. Uh, hold your place there in Romans. Actually, you don't even need to hold it. We're going to come back later. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Matt read a moment ago Luke's version of uh, the birth of the Lord Jesus. The other gospel writer who deals with the birth of Jesus is Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 1, beginning verse 18, we read the following. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." Now all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now most of you have heard this account and Luke's account of the birth of Jesus all of your life especially this time of year. Um, so what are we modern folk living in the year that we do who know about reproductive biology and DNA and chromosomes and genetics to make of this concept of the virgin birth? Well, we have about three options, as I can tell. Uh, number one is to reject it and explain it away. That's what a lot of people do. Uh, there were heresies that rose around the birth of Jesus, that uh, actually his father was a Roman soldier and all sorts of terrible things were said about Mary. Um, the, the most serious threats of heresy in the early days of the church had to do with the nature of Jesus and his birth. The question was, of course, as it is today, how could he be truly God and truly man? And theologians, hoping to untangle that theological knot, were led into heresy. A couple of most popular early on in the church were Apollinarianism and Docetism, which both rejected the full humanity of Christ. Apollinarianism says a Christ mind was not human, and Docetism says his body was not human. And those are only two of countless others of heresies that have come over the last 2,000 years. That should not surprise us because Satan is a usurper, he's a liar, and he seeks to pervert truth. More common today is the second option as it relates to the virgin birth. And this is very common in the evangelical church writ large today. That is to ignore the virgin birth or at least minimize its importance. After all, let's face it, this doctrine of a virgin birth to some people is a little bit embarrassing to modern people. How can our lost friends who are analytical thinkers take our message seriously if we're out here espousing such seemingly unscientific doctrine? Well, that's not gone unnoticed. In fact, one of the most popular preachers in America today and pastors one of the largest churches in America said this just five years ago around the Christmas message. He says, if somebody can predict their own death and their own resurrection, I'm not all that concerned about how they got into the world. 
end quote. He said in that same message, quote, Christianity doesn't hinge on the truth of the stories around the birth of Jesus, end quote. So many modern preachers don't reject the virgin birth outright. They simply believe it is unimportant. That is non-essential to the gospel message. Well, this morning I want to advocate for a third option as it relates to the virgin birth. And that is, I advocate that we just believe it as historical fact as the Bible presents it. And in our time remaining, I want us to offer three reasons why the virgin birth is not only important, but necessary to the gospel message. And those three reasons are as follows. Number one, the veracity of scripture depends upon it. Secondly, the deity of Christ demands it. And finally, the sinlessness of Christ declares it. First of all, the veracity of scriptures depends upon the truth of the virgin birth. Now we know that the Old Testament declares that a savior is coming all the way back in Genesis chapter three, chapter three we have the first telling of the gospel, even as God was still cursing humanity and the earth and the serpent, he said there's going to come one from the seed of woman who will crush the head of the enemy. The Savior is coming. And then the rest of the Old Testament, prophecy after prophecy, gave clearer and clearer picture of that Messiah, that all the nations would be blessed according to God's covenant with Abraham. Isaiah, quoted by Matthew, says he was to be born of a virgin all the way to the point of what village he would be born in, this, the city of Bethlehem. And in the New Testament, we find again, clearly proclaiming this Messiah has come, born at a specific time and place in human history, just as predicted in the Old Testament. The angels declaring that this was good news for all people and that he, in fact, is to be born of a virgin. Now, you often hear an objection from well-meaning theologians that, that we shouldn't take the virgin birth too seriously because after all, it was only mentioned in two of the four gospels. Well, I would say to that, that's one more than is necessary to take it seriously. All of the gospel writers had different perspectives and themes in their writing, but here's the bottom line. And what I mean when I say that the veracity, that is the truth claims of scripture, depends upon the reality of virgin birth. Don Stewart says this, quote, if Jesus were not actually born of a virgin, then the Bible's wrong. If it is wrong concerning the virgin birth, then it is possible that it may be an error about other matters. And once the door opens to the possibility of error in scripture, the eventual and logical result is that the entire foundation of the Christian faith will crumble. The doctrine of the virgin birth and the credibility of Christianity go hand in hand, end quote. And Don Stewart is exactly right, of course. This is why Jude, the brother of Jesus, in his one chapter epistle says, we must earnestly contend for the faith once we're all delivered to the saints. The faith is the content of the gospel, what our Baptist forefathers called the fundamentals, including the doctrine of the literal virgin birth of Jesus. And so I think you can see that the veracity of the scriptures depends on the truth of the virgin birth. Secondly, the deity of Christ demands the virgin birth. Now here's our connection back to Romans 5 and the doctrine of justification by faith and specifically imputed sin. Now follow me closely here. If Jesus had been born in a natural way, that humans are born with an earthly father and an earthly mother, 
then he would have been only human. And if he were only human, that means he would have a sin nature like the rest of us. And if Jesus had a sin nature like the rest of us, he would have been unqualified to die in our place on the cross. And consequently, we would still be in our sins. So it's almost identical to what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15 of the necessity of the doctrine of the literal bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And at Easter time, we often follow Paul's logic there. That is, if there is no resurrection at all, that means Christ has not been resurrected. If Christ has not been resurrected, we are of all men most to be pitied. And the reason being is we're still in our sins if Christ has not been resurrected. And then he goes on to say, praise God, he has been resurrected. And I would say to the text this morning from Matthew chapter 1, praise God, he was born of a virgin. Because it is the virgin birth that is demanded by the doctrine of the deity of Christ. Thanks be to God. He's not just a man. He is the God-man. And this is the point. Remember I said that the four gospel writers had different perspectives and different themes in their writing. And just as if we were to go down to the intersection and wait on the latest fender bender and the police would come and let's say four different members of our church were posted at the four corners of that intersection and each of us were interviewed, we would see that thing from four different perspectives and angles. And our stories, though not identical, would harmonize and they would give the fullest picture of what happened. Well, that's what the four gospel writers do. They wrote from four different perspectives and putting them all together, we get the full picture of what God wants us to know. And in John's gospel, the primary thing he's wanting to convey is that Jesus is not just a man, that Jesus is God. And so he begins his gospel with these words. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. John's point seems to be that Jesus did not begin his existence the way all of us do at the moment of biological conception. Rather, Jesus is the incarnation of the eternal second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, who volitionally, willingly condescended to take on a human body so that he could live a sinless life and die a sinless death in the place of all who would believe. Now, I know that to be true because it's verified in other places in the New Testament, most specifically Paul's epistle to the church at Philippi. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Paul writes this, Have this attitude or this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, Speaking of Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now you'll notice that word is past tense. He existed in the past in the form of God. That is, he did not begin his existence in the conception. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to tightly, but he emptied himself. The Greek word is kenosis. He poured himself out taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. That's Paul's definition, definition of the doctrine of the incarnation, the enfleshment that 
Christ willingly, voluntarily, as part of God's eternal plan of redemption, at a specific moment in time, just the right time, the scripture says, poured himself out. Now exactly what that means, we're puzzled. We know what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that he ceased to be God in any sense of the word, but he left the glories of heaven and the prerogatives of heaven he left behind so that he could literally become human, taking on the form of a bondservant. He wasn't born to regal robes and splendorous castle in an antiseptic hospital. He was born as, as a common person was born. What humility, and that's Paul's point. That's the kind of humility that all of Christ's followers should have if we're to call ourselves Christian or Christ-like. Have this attitude of humility in yourselves that, that you're not too good for any service to the Lord because he left the glories and splendors of heaven to serve us. And as one pastor rightly said, it's not just that Jesus was God in a flesh suit. Rather, he is truly God and truly man. Now, how could a person be truly God and truly man? Well, we must remain humble. It's a mystery. And yet the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He did not have an earthly biological father. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary, making him truly God. And he was born of a virgin, making him truly human. Therefore, the God man. And so uh, we see that uh, the veracity of the scriptures depends upon the literal virgin birth and the deity of Christ. And I would say also his humanity. The, the fact that he can be truly God and truly man demands a virgin birth. But there, there's one other reason. I think the greatest proof of the virgin birth is the sinlessness of Christ declares it proclaims it. You see, in his humanity, Jesus was tempted in every way that we are. Isn't that what the scripture says? Tempted in every way we are, yet without sin, Christ died for us. And so if we could just kind of go back through history, all the way back before any of us uh, drew a breath, here's how the Bible unfolds what I call the eternal redemptive plan. The Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, determined to set aside a group of humans different and distinct than any other. And in the secret councils of the Most High, it was determined that the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, would leave the glories of heaven, take on human flesh, and become one of us. And that he would live a life to maturity, to adulthood, that he would be tempted in every way that we are, and then that he would go to the cross as the substitutionary sacrifice for all who would put their faith in him. But that efficacy of that sacrifice depended upon his sinlessness, because if he were not sinless, then he would be less than God. If he were less than God, he would be unqualified to take on the sins of others and that he would die a literal death upon that cross, and that he would be laid in a borrowed tomb, and on the third day he would rise again through the resurrection, showing his power over death and hell and sin 
and the grave, and that he would be borne witness to by hundreds of people, and that on the 40th day from the Mount of Olives he would ascend into heaven. The scripture says today he's seated at the right hand of the Father, ever making intercession for us. But that's not the end of the story, praise the Lord. And we talk about uh, the Advent season. Advent means coming, arrival. Jesus came to earth in the form of a baby. That was his first Advent. But the scripture foretells his second coming, his second Advent, when the trumpets sound, as Paul says to the Thessalonian believers, and the dead rise, and that uh, the Lord eventually will come to rule and reign forever as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so the sinlessness of Christ declares the veracity and the truthfulness of the virgin birth. Here's what I mean. In his humanity, Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, both actual sin and original sin. So theologians distinguish between those two things. An actual sin, the prefix A-C-T, action, a, a deed, sins that he might have committed personally. We humans are guilty of actual sin, aren't we? God gives prohibitions and rules and laws, and we violate and fall short of those laws, and so we commit sin. Um, theologically, we divide our actual sins into two broad categories, sins of commission and sins of omission. When we do something we shouldn't, we commit a sin. When we fail to do something we should, we are guilty of the sin of omission. Scripture says, he that knows to do right and doeth it not, to him it is sin. So Jesus was not guilty of either. There was nothing that God said don't do that he did, and there was nothing that God said do this and he didn't. In fact, the Scripture says it this way, he always and ever did the will of the Father. But it's more than that. The virgin birth declares more than Jesus did not perform actual sin. It also declares that he's free of original sin. Scripture describes Jesus as holy, sinless, and undefiled. And I think that clearly points to the fact that Jesus escaped the effects of original sin. What I mean by that is that Jesus, though he was truly human, did not inherit a sin nature from Adam. This means that Christ was preserved from original sin through the virgin birth. And that's why I say the virgin birth is not a secondary or tertiary doctrine, but is a necessity as it relates to the gospel. Now, that's about as far as I can go with the mechanics of the virgin birth. I wanted to go farther, to be honest with you. In fact, I have studied this week in my office and spoken with so many theologians concerning the mechanics of the virgin birth, I developed a theological migraine. <laughs> and our conversations went from the very technical as it relates to X and Y chromosomes and how babies are formed um, to the theological and ethical implications of human cloning. And I'm not kidding. For two hours, I talk with a theologian about the ethical implications of human cloning as it relates to the doctrine of the virgin birth. But I came to the conclusion about Friday that there are just some things that I think are best to leave in the category of somehow and some way. <laughs> we don't have to understand the mechanics of everything that God does. 
there are some things that we just have to say that in humility, somehow, in some way, God did it. And somehow, in some way, though the specifics are not given us other than the Holy Spirit did the work, is that Jesus was conceived in the womb of a virgin. And he was born, lived a perfect life, and died in our place. Uh, one of those theologians I spoke with this week is a very good friend of mine named Dr. Dax Summerhill. Some of you have been here 20 years or more. Remember, Dax was an intern here when he was in seminary. And this is what he says about it. Quote, The Holy Spirit did a mysterious thing that united true deity and sinless humanity in the womb of Mary, such that a new and perfect representative was born to be proved, crucified, and raised to glorious life, end quote. Now, I can't, I can't improve on that, <laughs> praise the Lord. But you'll see, I think, in that definition of the virgin birth, how it ties back to what we've studied, been studying about in Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, chapter 5 says, When Christ came, he was the new and the better Adam. That is, he's a perfect representative for all of us. And he was born of a virgin through a supernatural act. He was not simply a man. He is the God-man. And that was proven through his sinless life. None of us are capable of living a sinless life. In fact, we, as David said, are conceived in sin. And he was literally crucified. He had to have a human body to have a human death. And he was raised with a glorious body to reign forever. And friends, that's more than a biological curiosity. That is an essential element of the gospel. And so if you'll give me five minutes, I want to remind you of what the gospel is. Brother Tony and Brother Lawrence have been teaching a class the last six weeks called What is the Gospel? And about 70 people took it in our church, and we're going to offer it again semester by semester because we have a goal as a church staff and as your pastors is that every one of our 2,100 members could give an answer to the question, What is the Gospel? If you're asked. And if you're not asked, answer it anyway. And the gospel basically is this, that, that man's a sinner. He's a sinner by nature because of his uh, representation of our first parent, Adam. We're born into sin, which means we're incapable of obeying God. We are infected by sin in every part of us. There's no possibility that any of us would ever come to God on our own. In fact, it's worse than that. The Bible declares us to be strangers, aliens, and enemies of God. God would have been within his rights just to wipe us out of existence and wash his hands of us. But instead, before any of us ever drew a breath, he and the other two members of the Trinity determined to save a people unto himself for his own glory. And it played out just as the Trinity intended it. At just the right time, the second person of the Trinity left the glories of heaven, was conceived in the womb of Mary through the agency of the Holy Spirit, literally, was born in that borrowed stable, laid in that filthy manger, and 
grew up in a little obscure place in the Middle East. And when the time was right, he became public with his earthly ministry. He went from city to city, calling people to repentance and faith, performing miracles, verifying that he is truly the Messiah. And when the time was right, he allowed himself to be arrested and crucified. And I say it at Easter, let me say it at Christmas. Don't ever think of Jesus as a victim. Don't ever think of Jesus as a political revolutionary whose time was cut short. Jesus came to earth so that he could die on the cross for our sins. That's why he came. He was born miraculously, conceived miraculously, but lived a life similar to ours. He got hungry, thirsty, tired. He was maligned and mistreated by others. Even his own family members at times rejected him. But for the joy set before him, Hebrews says, he endured the cross, the shame that was attendant to it, and he willingly finished his mission, which is to die in our place on the cross. And when his mission was finished, he said, it is finished. No one took his life from him. He willingly gave it up. And when he was resurrected three days later, it declared to all the universe that God the Father was pleased with God the Son. It verified what Christ said of himself, that he always never did it to the will of the Father. It was the other bookend on what God the Father said from heaven at his baptism, behold my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And as we've been studying here as it relates to the doctrine of justification, because God the Father is pleased with God the Son, all who are connected by faith to Christ are also pleasing to the Father. We have been reconciled to him. Those of us who were aliens and strangers and enemies of God have been brought near. And he no longer calls us enemies, but he calls us sons and daughters. And Jesus calls us his friends. Friend, what about you? What is your standing with Christ this Christmas season? Are you admiring him from afar? Do you think it's noble and admirable that he would uh, go to the poor and, and the weak and the downcast and touch lepers and, and, and have a social justice ministry? That's not the Jesus of the Bible. No, Jesus is kind and merciful to, to all people and compassionate to the physical needs. That's not the gospel. The gospel has to do with your sin nature. The fact that you're a sinner by nature and a sinner by choice and left to your own devices, you would never seek God. And so he sought you out. He's the good shepherd, according to John chapter 10, who leaves his flock and pursues the one. He is the Christ of the Old Testament that was predicted and fulfilled in every way. In short, Jesus is the God-man. And he makes demands upon your life. The demand upon his life is that because he died in your place, he wants you to live for him. He wants you to despair of anything else you're trusting in and trust in what he did in your place alone. Full stop. So the performers put it this way, and we declare it to this day. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
And when we talk about in Christ, and when Jesus says to trust Him, put your faith in Him, we mean every part about Him. That means His eternal sonship. That means His virgin birth. That means His bodily death and His literal bodily resurrection. If you'll believe that Jesus is who He claimed to be, if you believe that Jesus died in your place on the cross and you bow your knee to His Lordship, you will be saved. And your relationship now will be new and different than it's ever been. You'll no longer be an enemy of God. You'll be a son or a daughter of the Most High. And you can celebrate Christmas in a way you've never had before as you understand that glorious truth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you of how you reveal yourself in the word. And Father, we know that uh, if you had not chosen to reveal yourself to us, we would be uh, floundering in the darkness. Because of our sin nature, we never would find you or even seek you. So, Lord, you sought us out. You breathe spiritual life into us, that those of us that are born again. You declared us forgiven through justification. You are every day separating us from sin, maturing us, making us more like Jesus through sanctification. And one day, Father, we'll be free from the presence of sin at glorification. And so, Lord, we rejoice in the gospel message. But an essential part of that gospel message is that Jesus is unique in all of history. He is the God-man. His humanity and his deity hinge upon the literal virgin birth. And so, Father, help us as Christians not to be embarrassed of it or diminish its importance, but to celebrate it this Christmas season and throughout the year so that all the world may know that Jesus is alive. And we pray these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.